Dick Vitale, the voice of college basketball for four decades and still as energetic as ever. Oh, wow. You can dream, can't you? The dream, man. That's what the country's about. The coach-turned-television broadcaster reflects on his early days on camera. You know, Graham, I know nothing about TV. What do you mean you don't know anything well, about TV? No, and the raw emotion of a health scare that threatened to end his Hall of Fame career. Leading up to games, you would have tears literally rolling down your face. Only a couple of people knew about it, really. Vital shares the personal setbacks throughout his life, from constant bullying as a child. I couldn't control it. It was something totally out of my control. To the loss of a close friend. And he started crying on the phone. He said, I have cancer, Dick, and it's bad. And how that inspired the work he's most passionate about today. Kids, beautiful kids, our future. Not enough being research done to help them live. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I guess the first question would simply be, explain the role that ESPN has played in your life over the years. Well, ESPN, without ESPN, uh, there's no Hall of Fame. There's no uh, the financial success I've had. Uh, there's no commercials. There's no books. Uh, there's no Dickie V. I mean, ESPN has been vital in my life. Uh, it's like my second family. I always talk about, you know, uh, the love I have for my family, obviously, my wife, my daughters, uh, my mom and dad up in heaven. But ESPN is my second family. They've been beautiful to me. The first game you broadcast for ESPN, I believe Wisconsin and DePaul in Chicago. And you said after that first game, you were just hooked. What was it about that? I don't know. It, it was just an incredible feeling. What it, what it involved, when I did that game, it was just unbelievable. It's a shot in the arm, walking in, talking with Ray Meyer, famous coach. Well, uh, they were number one in the country, DePaul at the time, Mark McGuire, all their players, and it was great. But I will never forget the chaos I caused because I had no idea. You know, Graham, I don't know nothing about TV. Many of us... That what do you we, mean you don't know anything well, about TV? No, seriously, you guys are pros at it. You study <laughs> it in journalism. I mean, what are we? We're jocks. Somebody gives you a microphone to go talk about a game. And it started. So the first question, basically, what about uh, the Paul of Wisconsin? And I went on like an unbelievable monologue. It was unreal, like three minutes or two minutes or whatever it was. And the Paul's got this, blah, blah, blah. And today they teach us, you know, 20 seconds, man. Boom, bam, go to the next... You learn, and I've learned 37 years of experience. What were some of the fundamental lessons that you learned early on that helped you as you progressed as a broadcaster? Well, you know, I think basically the one lesson you learn is you got to listen. you got to listen to your partner. You know, it's a two-way street. It's not one guy. It's not one man doing his thing. It's two people. So learning how to listen, number one, I pride myself in that. I mean, I'm listening when people say something, whether it be a producer, director, I'm observing what they're saying and I'm listening and I may carry it. The second thing is learning the art of getting in and out. Learning that art takes a while. A lot of guys, I feel very bad for them. You know, they start out and today they get critiqued so early and they have no experience. I mean, there are a lot of guys who I thought would be good in television, guys you recommend and when the red light comes on, it's a different animal. It's a different kind of guy. And I, I learned to relax when the red light comes on. I learned that you're gonna make some mistakes. Uh, but fundamentally, I think, number one, listening is vital. Number two, the art of getting in and out. Starting in the mid-2000s, I believe, um, leading up to games, you would have tears 
literally rolling down your face out of concern over how you sounded. Um, explain what was going on there. Well, I went through a tough time. I went through a, uh, a tough period. Only a couple of people knew about it, really. That I was going through a major throat problem. I mean, major. It was, uh, it was you know, Graham, it came a point where I came very close. Very close. I thought maybe it was over. The party was over. Why? Because I couldn't get words out. I couldn't get them out like I wanted to get them out. It was a struggle. It was a struggle. I mean, a struggle. And finally, what happened one day... I came home, my son-in-law, who's a surgeon, Chris came home and he said to me, I met a doctor today here who's a new throat guy in town. I want you to see him. And I don't want to say, I'm tired of seeing guys. Man, I saw seven guys. They will tell me I have to just live with this. No, no, I made an appointment. So I went to see him. He looked at me and he said, Dick, I don't know what it is, but there's something I don't like that I see when I go down looking into your throat. He said, but I can't get into there because I don't have the equipment to do such. And there's only one guy. He said, he's the best of the best. He is the Michael Jordan. He said, the Larry Bird. He is the creme de la creme, Dr. Steven Zytels. And I'm going to get you an appointment with him. Not easy, but I'm going to get you an appointment with him. Well, he did. And I started trying. He gave me a hell of an education. Called my wife over and he said, your husband's got a problem. Got a problem. He says, see, he's right here. These, I guess, black marks, whatever they were. He said, he's got lesions all over his throat. He said, and it could be cancerous. He said, we will not know until we do surgery. And we went, we did the surgery, and I just uh, got a lucky break, uh, went in there. It was pre-cancer. It was called dysplasia. Today, he and I have become such great friends. He is absolutely a superstar beyond superstars. Uh, Dr. Zytels has operated on giants. Uh, in fact, when Adele won her Grammy, she said to the crowd, she said, I owe this all to Dr. Steven Zytels. You go in his office, it's like a who's who, man. James Taylor, Steven Tyler. You'd be shocked at the people. Cher and all these, Lionel Richie, all these people that have had some throat problems. I ask this because the ladies that were putting on your daughter's wedding even told me they had to stick you in confessional before the wedding just to keep you from talking to people. So after the surgery, you couldn't speak for three and a half weeks. It was What's tough. that like? And, and the toughest for me was, I'll never forget this, it's about four and a half, it was a little more than three and a half weeks. It was longer than that. It might have been five weeks, I'm not sure, but it was a long period of time. So now it was time for me to go back to see him. And he said to me when I walked in the office, he said, speak to me. And I couldn't, he'll, he'll tell you this if you ever interview I couldn't get words out. I, like that. He said, speak to me. I was afraid, fearful what's going to come out because you read all reports after surgery, sometimes you don't sound like you didn't know. And I was afraid of what was coming out. And fortunately, he had me count to 10, 1, 2, 3, I'm gonna then do the alphabet, A, B, C. Like a little kid, man, you're, you're in your late 60s at the time or whatever I was, and I'm there trying to learn the art of how to speak. And since then, I have followed his rules. He has a bunch of rules. He does it with his singers as well. Number one, I don't do double headers anymore. I don't do two games in one night. Okay. Don't do that. Number two, I try to avoid 99% of the time, I don't do back-to-back -back games. I don't do that. Number three, days of games, I try to be as low-key. So what they do now at ESPN, they get a room. 
And I go out a few minutes with the kids, sign autographs, take pictures, and I go in a room and relax my throat before a game. Didn't you go to a vocal coach? Oh, yeah, I, I get one. I get one regularly. In fact, he's supposed to be here today. Okay. And because you're here, you've taken his spot. He's going to be here next week. And he goes through uh, some routine I got to do. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, what are the exercises? Well, you know, there's a lot of crazy, uh, crazy exercises like... Um, Oh, oh my God! Some of the stuff that I do, you you'll be hysterical. Um, if you, you want to see some, I get right under my my desk there, right there. They should have been underneath there. There's some of the sayings, and some of the, and I'm a reading lesson. <clears throat> the skunk sat on a stump and thunk the stump stunk, but the stump thunk the skunk stunk. Five fine Florida florists fried fresh. Flat flounder fish fillet. I mean, these are, these, it's, it's comical. But if we do these regularly, we've been doing them for seven, eight years now, and, and it works. Uh, uh, you know, it's just uh, unbelievable. You're blind in uh, your left eye. Um, explain what happened. You know, uh, I'm told so many things. I, when I was a youngster, supposedly I pointed a pencil in my arm prior to when I'm four or five and my eye um, lost the vision in the eye, damage, I guess, to the cornea or whatever. And just, I, I don't know what it is to have two eyes, to be honest with you. I don't know what it is, so I don't miss it. I, don't, I feel I could do anything anybody else does. What do you remember from the infection you got in your eye? That was probably worse than, that I do remember. I don't remember the poking in the eye as a little baby or a kid, two, three years old, but I do remember the infection. It was the start of my junior year. I couldn't go out in the sun. If I went out in the sun, I was like this all the time. I mean, it was pus coming out of my eye. It messed. My mother was going from one doctor to another and we're getting different advice. A lot of them were saying, we should take the eye out. Take the eye out, because he can't see it in any way. Take it out. And the other doctor said, no, don't take it out, because you never know latest techniques. We'll try this medicine. And finally, my Family physician, Dr. Joseph Latona, who delivered us, and he was a great guy. Dr. Latona told my mother, I'm gonna to try to get him an appointment. He said, there's a genius in the eyes in New York, at the New York Eye and Ear Hospital. I believe that's what it was called. His name is Dr. Bernard Samuels. And I'm gonna to try to get an appointment with him. And I went to him, and I was like 15, 16 at the time. I went to his office and said to me, I'll never forget it, son, don't let anybody because he was old, he was probably at the time in his late 60s. Don't let anyone tell you that the eye should come out. He said, I'm gonna do a procedure on you and you're not gonna have any more problem with the sun, with the pus, I'm gonna take care of that. I can't take care of your vision, that's been damaged. Well, he did that and it was like, oh my God, I could walk in the sun, I could walk outside. And, and I wanna share this because I finally shared it in my book you know, we hear so much today about bullying. We hear so much today where kids embarrass people, humiliate people, adults do it. I think back of my days in the Little League. My eye used to go on the side. I could never look you straight in the eye. If I were doing an interview now with you in my olden days with my eye, I would be like this. As I did, because I never let you know that I can't. Because if I looked at you like this, you would turn and look because my eye would go out here. So when I was pitching in the Little League, I didn't realize it was like knives going through me, adults screaming. 
Hey, does that kid know where he's throwing? Look at his eye, man. Does he know where he's throwing? And I'd go home, and my mother would come to my room. I could feel it today. I'm going to my room, and I would cry like a baby. So I saw her. I'd look at the mirror. I'd look at the mirror, and I, I couldn't look at the mirror. My eye was closed. I couldn't control it. It was something totally out of my control. I had no control about that. And it was to bother me. Bother me, you wouldn't even ask girls out for a date because you felt like, do you want to look at me? And, and, and it was just a tough, mentally a time and getting teased all the time. And I beg people out there, I beg people, help people that have a dilemma. Don't hurt them. Don't hurt them and put knives to them. It might be you, it might be someone you love. In essence, I was really bullied. And I didn't realize it. I tried to make jokes. Of, uh, guys say, hey, man, you know where you're throwing? Look at your eye. And I laughed about it until I go in my room. I didn't laugh. Why does even today thinking back about that make you so emotional? It just, I don't know. It, it, it brings back such unbelievable memories to me. There's certain things in my life because I sit here today. I'm like a little kid who can't believe what's happened in my life. I, I, I wake up every day, my wife always tells me, you know, gee was you act like this is some new to you, being a, uh, uh, having some success. But I, I think it's, it's unbelievable what's happening. It all happened because I learned two things from my mom and dad. Two things, and I could hear them telling me today. My mother would say to me, fifth grade education. My parents, if they had a fifth grade education, they had a lot. But they had a doctorate of love. I got so much love at home was unbelievable. I was always meant to, in their eyes to be the best. When I got fired by the business, my father, I remember, don't they know what they're doing? Are they crazy? They don't know how good you are. I mean, you know how good that makes you feel that your parents think the way. I tell parents all the time, find something beautiful to say to your kids. It means so much to them. Your interest, I believe, in cancer really started with uh, Jim Valvano. You guys, I believe, really started becoming friends when you were working together at uh, the ESPN. Explain how you found out he had cancer. I got a call one day from the Washington Speakers Bureau who I'm proud to say I've been with for over 20 years and they booked me speaking engagements all over. And they called me up and they said, are you free this day, this day? And it was like soon, usually they book you a couple months in advance. And I said, gee whiz, what? He said, well, we got one of our people can't make these engagements. And I said, well, who is it? Why well, would we rather not? I said, come on now. And he finally said to me, Jim Valvano. I said, Jim Valvano, why can't he make these engagements? They said, call Jimmy up. And I called him up. And he started crying on the phone. And we both started talking. And I was just, you know, as certain people you feel like are invincible. I thought, Jimmy V, cancer, this loving, fun guy would all, I can't believe that. He said, I have cancer, Dick, and it's bad. And we talked. A lot of people don't know this, but Jimmy and I probably talked almost regularly during that whole period. And then when he, I'll never forget the first ESPY show, uh, went to the rehearsal. When I came from the rehearsal and came back to the hotel, 
I was blown away as to what they were going to do. I saw the video presentation about him and his career and how we're going to have the first, you know, Jimmy V is uh, going to receive the Arthur Ashe Award. I was going to introduce him. Uh, Dustin Hoffman introduced me. And it was really going to be a special night. So I called him up. So I wanted to make sure he was all on board. And when I called him up, he said, barely, I could barely hear him talk. He's going, Dick. I'm not coming. I don't. I could care. I, I feel miserable now. I'm sick as a dog. I can't do this. I can't do that. Hey, Jimmy, you got to come to New York, man. You got to come. This is special. Somehow, through the magic he did, I remember. I remember telling one of the people that were there. I don't know if it was the production assistant, whoever. Maybe we should bring a microphone right to his seat and don't let him get up. And when I introduce him, have him just say a few words. Thank you there. Never in my wildest dreams that I ever thought he'd give the speech that he gave. But I remember him when he saw me talking, he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm trying to make it easy for you. I mean, he was throwing up in a wheelchair. He was, I mean, it was unbelievable. Well, finally, he just said, get me up on the stage. And we got him up. Mike Krzyzewski, I think it was Joe Theismann, myself, we carried him up on the stage, basically. He got up. I thought he was going to say, thank you. If you watch, I'm standing to his right for the whole speech, because I thought he was just going to take the award I give it to him, say thank you, and sit down. I'm standing in awe. It was the greatest speech. It has, you know, I feel this way, Graham. You know, we can talk about greatness all we want. To me, the definition of greatness in an individual is the impact they make on others' lives for generation after generation. I don't know the exact number by the time you go in air, but I'll guarantee it's probably 150, 160 million that has been already raised in his name for research in all forms of cancer. Think about the lives that he's affected and the people that he's helped along that way. That is magical. You said the hardest speech you ever gave was speaking at the funeral of a one-year-old. Adrian Littlejohn. I spoke at Adrian's funeral. It was brutal, man. Watching a mom and dad put their child, I told you earlier, I was talking black tie affairs, corporate events, Hall of Fame events, standing there watching a mother and father put their child to rest. How do you get worse? I mean, it was as tough as can be. And I got to know those kids. Those kids are beautiful. I, I think I sent you a flyer. There's 12 of them that have been with us at my gala who no longer are here, who lost their lives, they lost the battle. But there are a lot of other kids we can share who have made it. The Jake Taraskas, the Kyle Peters, I could go on and on, uh, Cole Eicher, uh, so many beautiful kids out there. Tatum, uh, Tatum Parker's as good as it gets. She can't do enough to help other kids. These are kids who are cancer survivors, and we bring them to our event, showing that dollars do work. But I'm obsessed with it. That's my biggest thing now in my life, as I go forward in my life, on how many days I have, to my last breath, I'm going to beg, I'm going to plead with corporate giants, with people in the world of athletics, we need money for kids. And they have to understand they might be helping someone they love. That is why people say, why are you so obsessed, it seems, raising money for kids, for pediatrics? Why? Because God forbid something happened to my grandkids I want to make sure to research dollars because I'm going to tell you something that bothers me. And it really bothers me. And it should bother all the experts out there as well. 
What if I told you that only 4%, 4% of every dollar raised for cancer research goes to pediatrics? 4%. That's a crime. Kids, beautiful kids are future. Not enough being research done to help them live. I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. I really don't, Graham. I don't well, think people are aware, aware of that number. But 4% for kids, that, my friend, is a crime. The one thing that's amazed me through my 11 years and every dollar I raise, and I beg people, if you can help us, you may be helping your child, just go to dickvitalonline.com, click on there and you can make a donation. And it goes through the V Foundation. You broadcast uh, LeBron's first ever televised game. What do you remember from that one? You know what I remember about that? I didn't want to do it. That's the first game in my 30, well, I don't know how many years it was then at the time when he played, but I'm here 37 now, so you do the math, subtract, whatever it is, let's say 25 years or so. I didn't want to do the game. When they called me, I said, come on, now we're making this high school kid into like, he's a god, so young, give me a break. No, Dick, we want you to do the game. Then they hit me up, so you're gonna do it with Dan Schumann, but you're also gonna do it with Bill Wall. I said, Walton and I are gonna walk in that arena at a high school game and make this kid like this is him. I say, he can't be half as good as what they're saying. Well, we go down there, and I cannot believe it. He literally took his team against a team that had like four or five Division I big-time players and made them look like they were junior varsity players. That's how good he was. I remember talking to him after, and I said, LeBron, you are so much better than what I ever dreamt you to be. I said, so much better. I said, you're going to be besieged by all kinds of people who all want a piece of you, make good decisions. And the one thing that I'm very proud of when you, you follow his career, he's been a tremendous role model. I know people get on him about the decision he made. It was the way it was done. But really, you study what he has done for people, what he's doing now, giving money, scholarship money to kids in Akron. He never forgot where he came from. And we need more people like him. What would you say is the most satisfying moment from your career to date? My most satisfying moment was watching the joy and jubilation in my family at the Hall of Fame ceremony, the Naismith Hall of Fame. When you go to the Hall of Fame, now my picture's right up there, my grandkids get see Jordan, you see all those people. Wow, it's, it's unbelievable. How tough was it though on you, the first few times you were nominated not getting in? Really, uh, not as tough, because I never felt in my heart that I was ever going to get in a Hall of Fame. You, you really didn't? No, you know, I mean, you hear people say, well, you contributed a game, you belong in. I don't think a lot of people are aware of this. Bobby Knight, are you aware of Bobby Knight's situation with the Hall of Fame? I bet he helped you yeah, out a lot. Yeah. What, what's even more impressive than that, when you were broadcasting when he was a coach, you guys weren't all that close. He, he was pretty hard on you. Well, he's hard. Bob was tough on you. Bobby's a, Bobby's a guy, if he likes you, he's going to go, go to bat for you. Well, one day Bob called me up and he said to me, I don't know if you're going to get in the Hall of Fame. It was the third time I was nominated. He said, but I'm going to tell you what, you're going to feel like a Hall of Famer. So I have letters from every living Hall of Famer, from John Wooden, Krzyzewski, right down the line. He said, I have letters that they've written to the Hall of Fame on how there should be no category called contributions to the game if Dickie V is not in. And I started laughing, really? He said, yeah. 
He said, I started this because I firmly believe it. I said, you don't have to do that. Don't, you know, Bob, you don't tell me what to do. Dick, don't tell me what to do. I did it because it's the right thing to do. And he said, here's what I'm going to do. He said, whether you get it or not, I've sent these all to the Wall of Fame, but I'm going to send you copies. I'm going to send you a copy, Coach Wooden's letter. It just brought me I mean, handwritten letter, John Wooden. There shouldn't be Dick Vitale's passion for the game, so been vital to the game of college. It was really beautiful to see, and Bob did it, and that year I got in. I got in. I know they wanted you to give like a five-minute speech. It ends up lasting 25 or 30 minutes. I, I hadn't watched it until the other day. From minute one to minute 25 or 30 was I was short, actually, it. compared to some guys. Yeah, right. I really, there's no way in the world that you could get up and think about all the people, Graham, that have been good to you and do it in five minutes. You just can't do it. It was just an incredible moment and an incredible high. And, but I just, I let it go from my heart. I must have rehearsed. My wife had a kick out of what I gave my speech. She must have heard my speech 5,000 times in a bathroom, in bed at night, going over and over. Hey, that's interesting because that was my question when I was watching it, if you rehearsed or if you just- yeah, let, let me tell you what happened. So when the speech ended, she said to me, that was nothing what I heard. I said, I don't know what happened, Lord. Everything I memorized, all that stuff went out. I just said, you know what? I'm going to talk right from here. Talking about parents, talking about ESPN. Probably the greatest compliment, and he doesn't even know this, I've ever received as far as I'm concerned. I was inducted a little while back into the Hall of Fame of Broadcasters. And introducing me was George Bodenheimer, our president at the time at ESPN. CEO, president, and George got up and told the crowd. So a lot of you don't know this. He said, 1981, when I was hired by ESPN, meeting him, he said my first job was to drive Dickie V whenever he came to Bristol, work in a meal room, and Dickie V basically would give me all this advice. I was basically in his eyes, Dr. Dick before there was a Dr. Phil, because I would tell him, he was saying, my girlfriend's getting upset with me, man. Here I am working in the mail room. I want to be in marketing. I want to get ahead of marketing. And he went to a great college, Denison. And I would say to him, George, there's something about you. You're going to make it big. I know you are. And one day, I'm sitting in Atlanta airport, mid-90s, and plane delayed. Grab the paper, USA Today. Named the president of ESPN, George Bodum. I said, holy, that's my, that's my former driver. True story, I called up his office. I told his secretary I didn't want to talk to him. A voice message, I'm going nowhere with my life. What am I doing? I'm driving you around. All I do is that. I'm working in a mail room. I said, George, you're the president, man. Don't forget me. I want a new contract. <laughs> uh, I got my five-year contract, baby, instead of a wristwatch. But George told the crowd that night, the greatest compliment I got. He said to the crowd, Dick Vitale treated me like royalty when I was his driver, and he's treated me the same way now. And the reason that was the greatest compliment, it hit my head immediately. My mom would be so proud, and my dad, because they always said to me, Richie, be good to people, and people would be good to you no matter what they do in life. Because of your success, you've earned the 
ability to have the convenience of being able to fly private to <laughs> games that you do now. No, no. How's Financially, I do that. Right. Uh, the, I want to make clear ESPN does not pay for that. They reimburse you for first class. Yeah, first class, right. yep, yep. Um, how has that changed your life? Changed my life. Without the private plane, I wouldn't be working. I wouldn't be working because I give you a simple time frame. I did a little charting of it all. Last year, my, my season basically runs from, oh, let's say November to the beginning of April. So you look at maybe 125, 130 days. What if I told you because of a private plane versus going commercial, I was home like over 70 some of those days. It's unbelievable. You can't put a price on that. And at my age now, it's vital that I spend some time with my family as well because every day is one day closer, you know, to the ultimate end. And, and I just think it's been phenomenal, but I do that on my own. I've been very blessed financially to be able to earn dollars away from broadcasting that I set up into what I call a plane account. It's a very expensive. I would have never done this when I was 50 or 45 or 55 because at that time you're saving for your future. But right now, you know, my future is, you know, taking care of my grandkids, taking care of my, my daughters and sons-in-laws, and making sure that they have something uh, later in life and helping others. If you're doing a 7 o'clock game for Duke in North Carolina, Take me through what the schedule is from when you're able to leave here to when you well, get Well, you back. know, we don't have to report the announcers till 5 o'clock, two hours prior to game time. Prior to that, though, the day before, you're on a phone with coaches, producers, directors, getting all your information and all. But as far as the actual itinerary, as long as you're there by 5, but I make sure I'm there like, for, uh, let's say a 7 o'clock game, I'd leave here maybe 11 in the morning. I'd get there 1, 1.30, uh, hang around, talk to some of the coaches or local people, and then go out and they have a room for me at ESPN, maybe do a sports center hit, and then do the game and get in a plane and come right back home. Now, if I went commercial, you go the night before, you know, can't get out after the game, so you got to go home 12 noon. So it takes three days, three days of your life. Well, three days of my life is precious. So it's really added to my career. It's added. It's money. People say to me, man, you wasted all that money. I don't call it a waste of money. First of all, it's money I never had. It's from outside. When I first approached my wife about it, you know, I said, it's going to cost a lot of money. But I promise you one thing. It'll never come from my checks from ESPN. And I'm fortunate, knock wood, I have not touched an ESPN check for playing use ever. So that's all from extra income. How would you describe what life's like today? My life's been a fantasy, a dream. If it ended today, I could not describe it any better than the fact that I've been a boy, a ball of dream. I've lived a life blessed with a great wife, Hall of Famer, Great kids, beautiful grandchildren, have a beautiful home, make a decent living, uh, work with beautiful people. Uh, I may not always agree about all the decisions that are made, but I, I work with some beautiful people, and I've I, I just been so touched magically by the man upstairs. I have really been a blessed guy. And I hope it doesn't end. I want to go on and on. And I want to be that guy that walks in to do a game at 100 years of age. And you'll be sitting in that chair, and you'll be interviewing me. You'll be 53 at the time. You'll be sitting there and say, Dick, 
I interviewed you when I was 29. What does it feel now at 100? Oh, wow. You can dream, can't you? The dream, man. That's what the country's about. Dreaming. The greatest country of all. No doubt about it. I'm going to be like Muhammad Ali now. And the greatest country of all. America. Love it, baby. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> that was oh, great. Man. Thank you. <laughs> you wore me out, Lord. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.